the National Archives podcast series, Closing the Last Day, Death, Memory and Landholding in the Inquisition's Postmortem, 1216-1660, presented by Sean Cunningham. On the 7th of February, 1404, Catherine Warbleton died at Sherfield near Basingstoke in Hampshire. On the one hand, she owned the manor and had lots of other land nearby, so was reasonably wealthy and probably enjoyed a fairly comfortable life since her husband, John, had died in 1375. On the other hand, she only held the manor from the king because she had successfully performed the services of being marshal of the whores of the royal household, of dismembering criminals condemned within the king's palaces, and of measuring gallons and bushels for the king's ale and bread. Perhaps not the kind of job an elderly widow would have relished, but something her 22-year-old grandson, who inherited the manor, might be more interested in. This information comes from Catherine's Inquisition's Inquisition post-mortem, which were recorded um, in Latin by a county official known as the Schita, um, and it was information on landholders and their lands held after their death. And in the feudal structure of English society, all land was held by the king in person or directly of him by landholders, all of whom were technically his tenants. From 1216 until the Civil War of the 1640s, Inquests were held on the death of all people who held land directly from the Crown. This type of landholder was known as a tenant-in-chief, and these records are very valuable and important sources for early local and family history. So why and how were they held? Firstly, they were recorded in Latin by the Escheta, who was an official appointed by the King, who was concerned with Crown income from the relationship between tenants and the Crown and inquests were held in each county where the dead tenant-in-chief held lands. And separate commissions um, under a writ of Diem Closet Extremum, which we saw in the title, literally, he has closed his last day, will be filed with the returned record for each inquest. And copies of these findings were sent back to the Exchequer, the Chancery, and after the 1540s to the Court of Wards for heirs who were under age. And these are the records we now hold at the National Archives. The reason they were held, of course, was money. The Crown needed to know who the next heir was, and also if the heir had reached full age, which at the time was 21 for men and 14 for women. And the Crown could charge a fine to allow them to take possession if they were of full age. If the heir was underage, however, the Crown could sell the wardship of the heir until they became legally adult. Usually wards became married into the family of the guardian, taking their lands or a portion of them into the new family. So the Inquisitions themselves offer descriptions of landholding and land use in England, Wales, parts of Ireland and Calais, which was in English hands from 1347 to 1558. The Inquisitions also include lists of local jurors, which is some indication of which families were active in local communities in times past. And jurors used their local knowledge to estimate the value of the lands and um, usually described the landholding itself, which was called an extent. And the inquests provide useful genealogical connections, especially where the heirs were widows or married siblings, the age of heirs was also given, and the date of death of the former landholder can also be found, along with estimates of income, land values, and land use itself. It also records dower. A wife was entitled to one-third of her husband's lands after his death, and she also kept any lands of her own inheritance if she was an heiress until she died. So some inquests were held specifically to assign dower to a widow. And this could again take large portions of family estates out of the hands of male heirs and make them more difficult to track down in the records. The great social value of IPMs comes from inquiries into the ages of heirs, called proofs of age. 
and from evidence of the type of service from which, by which lands were held. To decide on the age of an heir, the manor's tenants collected together before an inquest and presented their recollections under an oath that were designed to prove when the heir was born and therefore when the manor could be inherited. Many revolved around baptisms, births, deaths, accidents and natural disasters. And the reasons ranged from the spectacular, such as gales blowing down all the trees in the village, three men murdered in the church, a bridegroom drowned when falling off a bridge on his wedding night, to the more mundane and tragic, such as an, act, an axe breaking a juror's foot, the burials of children, horse theft and house fires, some of which are more believable than others. And this is the kind of record we have as a, as a proof of age. And this is just a long list of these people's recollections with their ages as well. Other service could be in kind. Some manners were held by the presentation of red roses at midsummer by gifts such as hawks, horseshoes, herring, cloves, cumin, spices being very valuable at the time, spurs, wax, and a horse sack and skewer in wartime. Land was also held by performing specific officers called sergeanties, and this is what we had at the start with Catherine Warbleton. Sergeanties included carrying a white wand before the king at Christmas, but only if he was in Lincolnshire, <laughs> holding the king's head on board shift while he sh sailed from Dover, and meeting the king with two white capons on the manor's bridge if he happened to be visiting. Now, many of these are obviously not expected to be performed in person and are symbolic and customary, but it's probable that some of them can be linked to surviving local customs, to place and field names, and to folk history from the parishes of England and Wales. So, worth investigating, and some people have done this uh, as folk historians. So what we have at the National Archives is a very large collection of thousands of these inquests, which, until fairly recently, had to be accessed through printed and manuscript finding aids. There's various ranges of them being published in calendars for the reigns of Henry III up to Henry IV, and for Henry VII's reign. And these have been in print for about 100 years. And there's a project with Cambridge University at the moment which is carrying on the calendaring sequence for Henry VI's reign, and I think we're up to the 1440s at the moment. And this is the kind of entry that the calendars um, summarise. So the manuscript you saw earlier of proofs of age, this is the actual um, part of that manuscript as it's calendared and summarised. So you can see the date, um, the file reference down at the bottom right, and the various people and their ages who are giving their statements about the age of the heir um, and the various reasons why they remember that. One says he was, um, his mother was the heir's godmother and he was present at the baptism, more baptisms, his mother was the heir's nurse, fairly minor recollections, maybe 20 years earlier. So the catalogue contains the names and county details of dead tenants-in-chief for the reigns of Henry V to Richard III, which is about 1413 to 1485, and for Henry VIII to Charles I, 1509 to 1649. So what we've been doing for the past year is trying to fill a gap initially between 1216 and 1413, and this has been fairly part-time work, working from the calendars to convert the entries. And our aim has been to make all IPMs searchable by the name of, of tenants-in-chief and the county in which they held lands. And we've now got a little gap in Henry VII's reign on the catalogue, but we know this can be done in a, a fairly short amount of time because of the uh, systems we've set up to do this. So what we've done, we've gone from what was on the catalogue, basically a no-description available entry, to something which gives you the names and the county, and we've tried to modernise place names and obvious surnames so that when people are searching now, they're going to get the right kind of results. But we've also put the, the name as it appears in the, the document alongside it. This is a snapshot of the, um, the editorial system we have been using, which you'll probably see quite a lot today. Uh, but we're also using coded word tables which can convert 
all a, lo a large amount of information directly into an edit set, which we can then manipulate a bit more straightforwardly. So, so far, we've completed about 744 files with about 15,000 names. And when we finish the Henry VII files, we should have about 30 to 40,000 names of tenants-in-chief on the catalogue. And this kind of enhancement, we can take steps further by adding the names of manors, which we've done for the very earliest ones, and then linking this to other resources like the Manorial Documents Register, will create a very large and very useful resource for local history. The projects also enhance staff skills and knowledge, both on the technical side and through um, researching finding aids and paleography, Latin, that kind of research skill. And we've also, as you've seen with the Word documents, looked at new technical solutions to try and make the entry easier and quicker. So the landowners weren't just nobles, knights, earls and duchesses. You know, there are crown tenants who were butchers, tailors, bakers, as well as foreign immigrants, widows and clergymen. And the snapshots of manorial life and how land was used make the Inquisition's vital evidence for anyone interested in how land has been used and communities have developed and changed over the past thousand years. And when linked to similar records in the medieval and early modern periods, this certainly makes this, this period of our history a little less remote and inaccessible. So I hope that cataloging projects like this are encouraging researchers to explore new areas and documents and might well contribute more to our goal of bringing history more fully to life. Thank you. This event was recorded live as part of the Catalogue Awareness Day on November the 30th, 2007 at the National Archives. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives, all rights reserved.